Welcome to Poppin' Off, a special episode of Bubbles and Books, where we pop off with some of the most interesting, intelligent, wonderful, amazeballs people in our community. We are about to embark on what is the most thrilling experience today for me as a reader. <laughs> you are and, fangirling hard. And a bookstore owner. I've had about like a half an hour to gently calm down my enthusiasm <laughs> over our guest and her dog because one of the many reasons we love her is she's a dog lover. So today on Bubbles and Books, we are talking to Claire Lombardo, author of the instant New York Times bestselling book, The Most Fun We Ever Had, which I count as one of the best books I've ever read. The most meaningful books that it's I've ever read. It's definitely like a book that stays with you. I read this book for a book club, and I think it probably was around the time it was released. Mm-hmm. Because it was still in hardcover. And, you know, we we read a book every month, and that is one of the ones that has stayed with me, that's resonated with me. Oh, so Thank you, guys. Um, so it really debuted in 2019, <laughs> and it has been translated into at least a dozen languages. I love the French cover. Oh, me too. Thank you. Yes, the legs on the stairs. Yeah, Yeah. it remains a best-selling paperback at Dog Eared Books and everywhere. So welcome to the podcast, Claire Lombardo. I'm excited to have the privilege to meet you and the opportunity to share you with our customers every day, as well as our listeners across the world. So welcome, Claire Lombardo. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a delight. Yeah. In speaking of delights, in the tradition of bubbles and books, fair warning, we're about to pop. Yay! That was a good one. It's though. a celebratory sound. She is she is well practiced. My husband likes to think he can open champagne fa- like better than me, and I think he's full of it. Like <laughs> I am an expert. He thinks I every time though it's like I I have the bubble over around him, but everywhere else it's oh, a perfect it's open. So this is preamble Catalyst Ridge Wine, sparkling rosé from the Wilmette Valley. So sometimes we drink French. Thank you. Willamette. Oh, okay. Yeah. My aunt lives in the like near there, and I learned it as Willamette. Damn it. Well, I'm not gonna forget. I that. only know that from like playing Oregon Sorry, Trail. You wanted to go there. That was like if you could get there without, uh, you know, typhoid, you typhoid or something. That would get. Sometimes, <laughs> haven't you ever played Oregon Trail? Yes, when I was like five. Oh, that's I where you have to go Oregon. here. No, it's one of your choices. The Will Ant. Oh. oh, see, this is what the blasting yeah, of a- trash carpet. We're <laughs> just, just like, whoops. It's like a party house. Let me introduce you to the novel, the most fun we've ever had. We ever had. Your novel tells the story of the Sorensen family of the course of four decades. This is like, as I told you, my jam, multi-generational family story where you get to like have the full experience of their lives. Um, it starts from the moment that Marilyn Con- Connolly and David Sorensen fall in love on the University of Iowa campus in the 1970s to 2016, when their four radically different daughters are set adrift by challenges as unique as their personalities. On the dust jacket, it so perfectly sums up the book this way. The reader is, quote, shown the rich and varied tapestry of the Sorensen's past, ears marred by troubled adolescence, infidelity and resentment, but also the transcendent moments of joy that make everything else worthwhile. It's so beautiful. It is pain and suffering, but a belief in love and joy. So as I prepared for this interview, I returned to my hardcover edition and I was looking at the beautiful ginkgo leaves on the cover that represents so much in the book. And all of the passages I marked still moved me in deep, deep ways, but also in new surprising ways because it's four years later. Um, So I 
want to quote a reviewer that blurbed your dust jacket for the hardcover release. Rebecca Mackay, who is the author of Great Believers, more recently, I have some questions for you, provided the following praise. Everything about this brilliant debut cuts deep. The humor, the wisdom, the pathos. Claire Lombardo writes like she's been doing it for a hundred years and like she's been alive for a thousand. <laughs> this is such perfect praise because you were 30 when this book debuted and many who reviewed it commented on your youth. You weren't married, you didn't have children, but you wrote the wide breadth of human experience with such expertise and such moving ways. And I was wondering if we could start by you commenting on what, where you drew inspiration from to craft a narrative that so accurately represented everything from a young married couple to a mother who's lost herself in her job as a mother, teenage children angrily asserting their independence, adults going off the rails, middle-aged women reckoning with the shape of their lives. How did you pull this off? Oh, gosh. I don't know that I did. Thank you. You uh, did. You, you totally did. did. You totally did. That's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I have a satisfying answer to this question, but I feel like the way that I look at it and the way that I looked at this book was that I just wanted to live with a family for as long as I possibly could and get to know each member um, and kind of just follow them. It started out as a story about the the Violet character, because I was very interested in this idea of a woman who sort of crafted this, you know, quote unquote, perfect life for herself, um, only to have a human from her past kind of surface and shake things up. But then I became less and less interested in that and more and more interested in, you know, her sister Wendy kind of crept in and her parents and... Um, so the more I, the more time I spent with these people, the more time I wanted to spend with them. Um, and I, I'm a very nosy person um, in just my regular <laughs> life. Um, and so I really wanted to just know everything about these people. Um, that's why it's such a long book. That's why it was a much longer book than it ended up being. Um, I saw quoted somewhere that it was like 800 some pages yes. at one point. Uh, and yeah. you scale it down to like, 500 and some. some. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but when I, you're invested in a story that you care so much about, you would be disappointed if there wasn't 500 and some pages. So thank you. So. Oh, thank you. Not everyone feels the way that you do, <laughs> but I will take that. Thank you. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I love family sagas myself. I um, A book I love that I mentioned when we were talking earlier is Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides. Um, and that's even more sweeping mm -hmm. in its scope. It follows several generations of a family. But that's a, a novel I used to read once a year um, because it's sort of like a nosy person's dream and that you get to just go into people's houses and look through all their stuff. I <laughs> love this. I've never thought about it from that perspective before because I am a nosy person who wants to know like, all the details, all the levels and layers and intimate details. Mm -hmm. Because if you're left wondering, I I don't want um, vague characters. Yeah. I want to see them. And many reviewers complimented how real each of your characters felt. They felt like people you actually know. I think Jane Smiley in particular complimented that part of your character development in her review for um, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Washington Post she yeah. reviewed it in the Washington Post, but um, I really enjoy that. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about my 
research on your your family life and your early career um, led me to your the fact that you're from a family of five um, are the youngest and that you also spent your early career in education and social work, six years that you worked um, in social work and were very involved with all walks of life. Do you feel that that informs your writing on all the shit that gets thrown at us? I do. I do very much. Um, I think I always tell my students when I teach undergrad students who are very sort of hungry to immediately go get an MFA in creative writing to not do that and instead go have another job. And that can be any job. Um, But for me, I dropped out of college when I was 19 partway through my first year of college um, because I was just unhappy where I was. And I worked at a preschool for a while, which was a very miserable experience. (laughs) (laughs) I would find it too. Yeah. um, Bless the teachers. Oh gosh. Yes. Um, And I was like, I believe my, my, my title was bathroom aid, which was the kids to the bathroom and sometimes change. It was like a miserable, I I had to sit in this like dank hallway of this. It was an old church. And anyway, that does sound horrible. Yeah. It was very depressing. Um, But then I started working at the Chicago coalition for the homeless. Um, And I was a paralegal. I was working for three um, public interest lawyers. Uh, But I had to do a lot of community outreach. And so I was going into neighborhoods of the city of Chicago that I had never been and that I, you know, knew nothing about. And I was meeting all of these people, our clients, um, who had lived lives that were so different than mine. Uh, And one of the things that I, I was the person who answered the phone. So it was sort of my job to help people tell me their stories so I could then relay what their issues were to the attorneys that I worked for. Um, And that was such a privilege to be able to kind of help people tell their own stories. And it was often people who had never been asked to tell their own stories or who weren't used to being listened to. Um, So I got really good at listening. Um, And so I think that certainly increased my empathy, but also my my curiosity about people and my um, just awareness of places that I hadn't grown up in and, and people I hadn't grown up around. Um, and so that's that's definitely a part of how I approach writing characters and, and getting to know my characters. I also had a professor in grad school who said that in order to become, or and I just spoiled the what I was about to say, but in order to write believable characters, you have to become those people. So instead of sitting down and saying, I'm going to write a story about person X, you actually have to kind of take off your writer hat and become that person. Do you sit with those characters then? Do you just sit in your own imagination as you contemplate what they would think and feel and do? Yeah. Yeah. And with most fun, I did so much overwriting and I would just say, Marilyn and David are going to the grocery store. That's never a scene that's going to make it into the novel, but I'm going to go with them and see what it's like. Or Liza and Ryan are in a fight. Oh, my dog is crying. Um, <laughs> they're in a fight on the way to the hardware store in the car. And um, so it was a lot of a lot of that and just kind of putting people in pretty pedestrian, not very fictionally cinematic situations and seeing how they would how they would behave. Um, and that was a lot of fun. That's super fascinating to imagine all the content that's out there that I mean, do those scenes still exist in your computer somewhere? They do. They yeah. do. I have a, I don't know who I have first heard call it a graveyard. I've heard another writer use that term before, um, but it's all the sort of out. I've never been able to sort of, I'm not someone who can just 
delete trash it. Yeah. Well, it's like um, Stephanie Meyer, her Twilight, when she brought out from Edward's perspective, what was the night midnight sun? You never know when someone's going to want the rest of the story. Yeah. And if you had trashed it, who would know? Who would know? Yeah. Um, to be fair with her, though, somebody had stole it from her computer at one point, and that's why she had said she was never. That was my teen years, man. It was Twilight, but <laughs> that's why she said she was never gonna put it out there because somebody hacked her computer and stole the first like few chapters. So she said, "Well, after that, she put the only those chapters online, so on that the they website. couldn't sell it." And I remember like, that, yeah. but I didn't know she the was controversy. Like, I'm never going to put this story out there, but then she did. And I, I've never read it other than what was online years ago. But hmm. yeah, cool. I read it. All <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, right. The book's title comes from a moment in the book when Marilyn <laughs> and David attend a university mixer after the birth of their second daughter, and Marilyn's caught by the dean of the medical school. Um, and she says at one point, as she's holding her baby on her chest, I just love being a mom. It's the most fun I've ever had. As they walk home later together, Marilyn reflects on the evening and ponders aloud, I wonder if I'll ever have something interesting to say again. And as a stay-at-home mom, I literally, almost to the word, made the same statement after two children. Will I ever have interest, anything interesting to say to someone who doesn't have kids again? Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I was in an event with my husband who worked with doctors where a man would look past my face at something more interesting. Sure, yeah. um, and I think that this really summed up quite a bit about her own experiences in those moments. And then when she's 29, three children under her belt, um, David reflects on Marilyn's identity and she's, he says she's become so staunchly irrevocably mom to these three girls that there's no room for anyone else. And even if there had been room, there wasn't anyone else because she hadn't had the chance to discover any of her other selves prior to the birth of their children. While my role as a mother has always, will always be like the grounding force of who I am because you can't get away from it once you've gone there. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't fully discover who I was until I was in my late 20s and until we embarked on this endeavor. I'm wondering, how did you write this so accurately? Did you observe this in your mother's own identity as it evolved? Um, and have you observed the phenomenon of women losing themselves in mother motherhood often? That's a really good question. I. I wouldn't say I, I observed it in my own mother, though she was uh, is a mother of, of many children. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, when I was working at a at a preschool, it's certainly something that I, I was kind of watching. I was, you know, 19 or 20 years old watching this. Gen I don't, what is a generation? 25 years? I don't Whatever. Women who are you know, 10 or 15 years older than yeah. me. Um, and I was thinking about you know, what that must feel like and what it just the, the, the complications that we face as women that you sort of get put in boxes mm -hmm. that you have to be one thing or another, that you can't be a mother and be some, I like all of those, those sort of stupid barriers that are put up for us that, you know, aren't actually real. They're socially imposed. No, but, but so um, common. Absolutely. <laughs> but I think, I mean, I do think it also comes back to with that scene with Marilyn, um, I had gotten to know her character so well, and I was thinking about what it must have felt like in the 70s to be this woman who's thinking, you know, 
I can do whatever I want. Maybe I want to be an English professor. Maybe I want to, you know, be an editor. Maybe I want to, you know, go off and whatever. Um, and there are these sort of societally imposed things that then fix her to a certain spot. Um, and, and fiscal things too, right? Her mm-hmm. husband's a student. They don't have any money. She, you know, she can't really afford to be a student and pay for childcare. And these are often, if not almost exclusively problems faced by women, it's yeah. often women <laughs> that have to make these choices. Um, and so I was really having fun thinking about her and thinking about how young she was too. Um, my mom was, I, I don't know, in her early, at the age I am now, my mom already had four children, which you have four children. Like, that's insane to me. It and is insane. It's amazing. Um, it is amazing. Yes. But I was thinking about, you know, being in your 20s and having these little tiny people to care for and not having figured out what you Anything. wanted. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. terrifying. Um, so I guess that's where that, that came from. I think one of the coolest things is the way you juxtapose the burdens and the confusion of motherhood with the beauty and love and those moments of joy. Um, I think about, (laughs) I think about um, the moment she and her three daughters are on Marilyn's bed and they're all surrounding her and I can feel the claustrophobia of being pregnant with your fourth child and having three children mm-hmm. climbing all over you. But she reflects on this is what makes everything else worth it. Mm, the, this yeah. is what duped me into having a fourth one. And so was that, I, I feel like in every passage, every chapter, every character of this book, you are juxtaposing the suffering with the joy and the love. Was that an intention or did it just come out naturally? Um, I guess both. I, it started out as just natural. I, I was, I think a year into graduate school and I hadn't workshopped this novel, but I was writing stories. And the thing that people kept saying about my stories was they were all really long. None of them had plots. Um, and they were all about people who liked each other like a lot. Um, and so I decided kind of defiantly to be like, okay, that's my thing. Like I'm going to write about people who are actually happy and who actually, um, which happiness for almost everyone, unless you're like delusional comes along with a lot of suffering. I think that's just being a person. Um, so with this book, I really kind of, you know, I use David and Marilyn and the fact that they are two people who actually love each other and remain in love. Like what a, what a concept. Um, but that they also like Marilyn, despite the fact that she's overwhelmed and confused and sometimes resentful, she really likes being a mom and she really likes her kids. And, um, and I think that's, that feels true to life for me. That Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, um, antipathy and joy and, um, Although those things coexisting. So it started out as something I was doing on that or doing naturally. And then I was just sort of like, fine, I'm going to make this my thing. I'm going to write about happy people. That's so cool. Uh. I would say that was a revelation I had as a reader in my discovery of books that felt good to me. I felt it in your book, and I also feel it in a lot of Emma Straub's writing Mm. in that there is strife that happens But in the end, people love each other and you will suffer, but you will love and there will be good. And so I love that you chose it. People like each other. (laughs) I know. What a, yeah, what a, what an idea. And I've come to realize (laughs) that some people 
need to see suffering in their work uh, and and unhappy endings because it reflects their reality sure. and they need company in that. So I see that there are writers like Hanya uh, Yanagahari, am I saying it right? Uh, author of A Little Life. There are people who need to read that book and be like, yeah, it's just one blow after another. Mm. And then there are people who need to read the most fun we ever had because they they want to have faith that people love each other and that there is goodness. So thank you for contributing to that canon. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, one of the things that you referenced was Marilyn and David's love for one another. Mm. Their happiness and love for one another is actually a pivotal point of tension in this book because it fucks up their daughters. Yeah. They're like, how can we ever be them? How can we ever reach this level of satisfaction or contentment or perfection? I am wondering if you have a model for this marriage. Was it inspired by someone? Because it feels like a fairy tale. As someone who's been married 18 years, I can see glimmers of what I aim for. And a promise of what it could be if you stick through the the gritty moments. So did you have an inspiration and why did you choose the great love as the downfall of the daughters? Yeah, that's a good question. I Someone told me recently, I can tell you're a teacher because every time someone asks you a question, you say, that's a great question. And I became <laughs> aware of it and now I do. So I'm, you're probably going to hear that from me a few times. But um I will. So this is not an autobiographical novel. You didn't ask me that, but I will <laughs> tell you. Yes. But I will say that my own parents did really like each other and were incredibly good friends to each other. And I didn't realize how rare that was until I became an adult. And I didn't realize until, you know, my own friends that I had growing up as adults were like, it was really weird. Like your parents were so nice to each other and they <laughs> seemed to really enjoy each other's company. And um and that is, it can be kind of a burden when you have a model like that of like, I would like that. Like, yeah. how can I find yeah. that? Um, and the average will never measure up to it. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, and so I think that was sort of a point of fixation for me. And it became a bigger and bigger and bigger part of the novel. Um, and I became interested in that sort of contrarian way as well that I, you know, I like to write about people who, who like each other. There are so many novels about strife and about divorce and about, you know, problematic relationships. And I wanted to see if I could <laughs> hold a book to this. My dog. <laughs> Hi, Renee. Renee is protecting us from I'm not a motorcycle. Sure yeah. Thank you, Renee. Thanks, Renee. Um, but I wanted to see if I could sort of hang a book on the clothesline of something like a good marriage. So when yeah. David has a medical crisis, I remember reading it and being like, oh my God, you're not doing this to me, are you? And then you didn't. Like, you had strife, but you didn't kill me. And I was like, thank God. Yeah. Thank you for sparing me. Like, th this felt realistic and not punishing. Oh, good. So, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. No spoilers, but you won't be destroyed. <laughs> you will cry a lot, but you will feel good. So <clears throat> the roles each of the Sorensen sisters play in their family are very real and relatable. 
I am one of four sisters, and then I have four daughters. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> like, my if someone reader. says she, my she, sisters so speaks to her in yeah. this store, I'm just like, well, 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 I got a book for you. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> so, um, as one of five children, and like the Sorensons tag along sister Grace, who is distinctly younger um, than her siblings, as were you, um, I'm wondering if Grace's experience mirror many of your own. Um, and whether the relationships between siblings mirror some of your own experiences. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Grace, the things about Grace's life that mirror my own. So when I started writing this book, I was 24, 23, 24, and I was in graduate school um, for something for social work, uh, which I ultimately dropped out of, but I was miserable. I was just a, living in uh, the Champaign-Urbana in Illinois in this terrifying cinder block apartment um, that was really depressing. And I hated my classes and I, I was just not, I wasn't, you know, I was, it was not the right place for me at the right time. Um, so I very much relate to Grace who feels like I'm supposed to have everything figured out and I don't. And so I'm just going to tell a lie about it. It's not a spoiler that happens early as I yeah. recall. I haven't read the book in a really long time, but um <laughs> Okay, mm -hmm. thank you. <laughs> um, so I definitely relate to that. And I relate to having these sort of the sense that there's nothing you can do that four people haven't done already, sort of like watching these four people mm -hmm. grow up in front of you. Um, and sort just that that sense of like, okay, that's been done, that's been done, that's been taken, that's been... Um, so I, I did feel that way a little bit. Uh, the rest of Grace... Oh, and Grace does work at a woodwind nonprofit, which I also did in my 20s, which was one of the weirdest jobs I've ever had. I nice had little cameo of a biographical info. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yeah. No, my editor's assistant, I remember, she was like the best and she she was like, you know, Claire, I, I just... This is a really minor note, but I, I don't think anyone's going to believe that she works at a woodwind nonprofit. And I was like, I, I'm... Yeah. But in terms of the, yeah, like the, the dynamics, I was quite, I still am quite a bit younger than my siblings. And I was a really quiet kid. I was a really sort of observant kid. And I would just watch them and I was fascinated by them. And so, yeah, I witnessed sort of the shifting loyalties between my sisters and my brother and, um, I've just always been interested in that. I'm interested in other people's siblings. I'm interested in birth order. I'm interested in, um, yeah, just where people came from and what their houses looked like, um, both, both, I guess, from a design sense, but I yeah. mean more from like a dynamic sense. So yeah, that also came from me. That goes nosy. really well with like the social work brain or the experiences. Like you would be like, a very good therapist that studying oh, a family dynamics <laughs> and like a curiosity about how our experiences and our families of origin shape us. Because mm -hmm. the longer you get into marriage therapy, the more you realize <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, guys. It's all good. Everybody should be in therapy for every part of their life. Speaking <laughs> of which, that brings me to Wendy. Mm. Your description of what it is to love a difficult child or a child who has chosen to put distance between themselves and their family. I like tears are coming to my eyes right now. It's so accurate. 
Um, Marilyn reflects that Wendy was harder to approach, harder to soothe, harder to pity. She thought of all the times she had tried to comfort her as a teenager, all the times her daughter's stick-like limbs had remained flaccid beneath her touch, all the times Wendy had sneered at her mother's effort to connect. This is exactly what it is to love this child. And I'm wondering, were you this child? Did you have a sibling who said, no, thank you. I'm going to be my own self for a while. Because what's beautiful and hopeful about your novel is the way the very long journey of this family allows them all to come back in orbit of one another. They're still individuals, but they reorient together. So did you have experience with a relationship like this? <clears throat> um, I mean, I certainly pushed my parents away as a teenager, not to the degree that Wendy does necessarily, um, certainly not necessarily, but, um, but I think, I think part of that came from my own relationship with writing Wendy, if that makes sense. Sure. Because Wendy was such a difficult character to love, which I think you ultimately have to do. You have to love all the people that you're writing about, even if they're they're behaving badly, which is all Wendy does. Is yeah. Badly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it took me a while with her to regard her as something in, as something other than comedic relief or you know, a catalyst for plot, both of which she she functions as in the novel. But I really had to come to empathize with her and look at her not just as an awful person, but as someone who's really struggling and who's, you know, someone who um, with Marilyn is she and Marilyn are actually quite a lot alike, which mm -hmm. is one of the reasons that they they butt heads so much. Um, and so I really just became interested in, in that um, and in my coming to love Wendy, I think that sort of antipathy with, with Marilyn grew out of, out of that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm also just, there is a, a teenage relationship in my new book. Um, I just, teenagers are, they're, they're the worst. And like, I was <laughs> the worst. We were all the worst teenager, I'm sure. Um, we break our parents' hearts. <laughs> yes. It's terrible. I think about that. And I'm very close with my mom yeah. now, but like my mom and I had a couple years where we were like, not, it was not great. I mean, yeah. it was nothing terrible, but, um, and so I'm interested in that, how we kind of become these other like little monster people for right. a few years <laughs> and can do some real damage. And so I, I, I'm interested in that. And I, you know, I grew up with four teenage siblings at the same time. So it's certainly something I was exposed to. I definitely think it's part, I, I was telling my daughter who read this and also I, my, my daughter, my mom, my sisters, everyone's read it. If I approach this book again now, five years after I first read it or four years after I first read it, I'm going to experience it in a different way because I have experienced something else in life. And I think there's this beauty in what you've created over the course of four decades that regardless of what stage the reader is in, their life is reflected in this book. Mm. And as you talk about, like, we're all these asshole teenagers at some point. If you don't include the asshole teenager stage in a book that involves children over the course of their childhood, then you have performed a disservice to your reader. <laughs> so thank you. Oh, sure. <laughs> encapsulating <laughs> our suffering. Um, what is your relationship like with you, all of your siblings now? 
Pretty good. I mean, I think as as a member of a big family, mm-hmm. you will probably relate to this. They fluctuate. Dyna- yeah. You know, if you yeah. ask me on any given day, my friends will joke. Like, my friends will try to keep track of, like, you know, the birth order of my siblings. I'm like, oh, that's the one you like now. That, you know. uh-huh. I mean, it's just <laughs> like, yeah, any any hour you ask me, it's it's it varies. Um, and I think it's certainly like the, the older you get and the more that your lives kind of diverge, mm-hmm. you're not living it out, you know, under the same roof anymore. So it's you see them less or you, you know. Do you have many still in um, the Illinois area? Two of them are. Yeah. yeah everyone's still in the Midwest. So we're That's all great. nearby. But um, yeah. Okay. You lead me perfectly to your setting. Sure. Um, you set the spoke in Iowa City and then Oak Park, Illinois, which you gave a rather scaling, scathing description of from David. <laughs> He's like, here's all the things that are wrong with yeah. this god awful place. <laughs> How did you come to make the choice to have your character setting reflect your own? And sneak peek, it seems that you return us to this area in your next book. Yeah. How do you know this? Because of the, oh, from your, okay, I'm a psycho. your secret access. Okay. <laughs> she is. Yeah. So I, something I tell my students that I, it is my own advice that I did not follow, um, is anytime you're writing something that remotely resembles your life, change any detail you possibly can without mm. sacrificing the integrity of the story. I did not do that. Um, I wrote Oak Park because I knew it really well. And I think it's an interesting place. I think it's an interesting place demographically and historically and socioeconomically. Oak Park is unrecognizable to me now, mm. uh, to the place that I grew up mm-hmm. in. I could not afford to live there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um but it's an interesting place. And it was it was a great place to grow up. They have great public schools. Mm-hmm. It is it, whatever. There's there's many good things to be said about Oak Park. Um, that being said, do I wish I had said it somewhere fake? Which is, spoiler alert, what I did in my second book. Okay. <laughs> I do not identify where we are. Because I got people either love that it's set in Oak Park or they are very defensive about my okay. portrayal of Oak Park. Um, and you don't need to. You don't need that drama in your life. No, I don't. I don't. I, it's not a hill I want to die no. on. I don't care that much. I mean, I, again, I'm glad to have grown up in Oak Park. I'm happy that Oak Park exists, etc. You just don't need to debate <laughs> versions of Oak Park no, with people. No, I don't. And it is a place that, I mean, like anywhere, Iowa City is like this. I'm sure Ames is like that. Like, it de- depending on what neighborhood you live in, people have different perceptions. And that's something I find so funny. Like, people in Iowa City will say, well, oh, the people on the other side of the river are like the fancy people. And I'm like, we all live in Iowa <laughs> like okay um, that happens everywhere so Every, we joke yeah. in Ames that uh-huh. if you see a beamer it probably has Illinois plates oh. on campus oh okay if you see okay. a beamer on campus it's a kid from Illinois okay who okay came to Iowa State um yeah that is what I got for you on most fun we ever had <laughs> I could talk for five days Um, But I think Ellen and I would really love to talk to you a little bit about your life as a writer. Um, We have a lot of curiosity about, I mean, you described the trajectory of your career in education really well. Like you dropped out of college for a moment when you were 19, you were a preschool teacher, then you went back for social work, then you worked for six years in social work, and then through a process that you've alluded to in some uh, interviews where you just started to, you know, peg away at the story, you discovered you might want to write. Could you talk about the moment at which you identified, I want to be a writer? When did it hit you? When did you kind of make that switch? Like, I'm going to do this. 
That's a really good question. I mean, I've always loved to write. I was a huge reader as a kid. I was a big sort of story. To, I would write these sort of, I loved like the Babysitter's Club and Sweet Valley and those yeah. like very plotty, <laughs> you know, teenage girl, young adult novels, I guess. Would they be young adult or middle grade? Probably middle, middle grade. grade. Okay. I My nieces are reading the um, Babysitter's Club graphic novels yeah, right now. Yeah, they're I'm, so great. Yeah. Um, but I always enjoyed it as something I just sort of did. Um, it was always, it's always been a part of my life. Books and words and writing have always been a part of my life. Um, but it wasn't until I had, I started social work school when I was 24, 23, 24, 23, I think. doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> and my father died very suddenly and unexpectedly. And I had been there for a few months and I had, I basically got to social work school and started writing a novel at the same time. Because um, I didn't really want to be there. Mm -hmm. And it is that sort of, again, that contrarian impulse of like, oh, you're telling me to do this. I'm going to go do this complete other thing. Um, and then my <clears throat> then my father died and I sort of was unmoored and looking at things in a, you know, a way I wasn't expecting to have to look at them. Um, and I just decided, I'm sorry, I just kicked you. Um, I just decided... It's, I remember where I was. I was in the. I used to smoke cigarettes. Am I allowed to admit that? This is you are because it's, it's also part of the narrative. Your it is. There's a lot fight of fight that impulse. I know they. They talk about like there's always a kid showing up with a pack of camels. I know. I loved it. You can you can always tell when a smoker has written a novel. Yeah, because of Shows the presence. Up. It's of, honest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I smoked cigarettes at the time in this like terrifying uh, commune apartment that I lived in. And I was in the parking lot smoking a cigarette in like the middle of February. And I called my mom and I said, I think I'm going to drop out of graduate school. And she was very kind about it. Um, but I just sort of decided I don't like what I'm doing and it, not like life is short, though it is. Um, I didn't have, you know, some sort of like cinematic moment like that. But I was thinking about kind of am I doing what I really want to be doing? So I decided I was going to leave and I was going to give myself a year. Um, and if nothing happened, that I would go back and finish my degree and I wouldn't have been penalized. I could just, you know, take a take a gap year or whatever. Um, so I left and I started I continued working on the, the book that became the most fun we ever had. And I cashed out. I had a savings account with about seven hundred dollars in it. I cashed it out and used it to apply to graduate school, <laughs> um, which is really expensive, as I'm sure if you have kids, you're you know, facing that down for college. But, um, and then I ended up getting in to a handful of places, including the Iowa Writers Workshop, which was such a, I mean, that's like not, that's where we're going. That's not a minor <laughs> thing. Uh, yeah. Like, that is really so hard to get in there. <laughs> well, and it was very much like, as long as I'm spending all this money and doing this, I'm just going to throw my hat. It was not something that I ever thought would happen. Yeah. Um, so I, it, so then I, I really haven't looked back. I have not, um, I have not looked back at my social work. To, I, you know, I don't think I will ever um, complete it. I don't think it was. I, I do think there's a lot of overlap between social work and writing. I think mm -hmm. there's um, it takes a certain kind of person and a person who's interested in a certain uh, who's just interested in looking at the world, I guess, mm -hmm. exhaustively. Um, but yeah, so it really people don't like when I there's like certain groups of people that I will not or I actually like because I'm a contrarian to tell this story to because it's people who are like my kid is on this path and they have to do this and this and this to have this happen and I'm like I dropped out of school twice and everything turned out okay like I <laughs> am so grateful for that message I'm so grateful for that message like Thank you. I like to say like you know as long as you don't own a house like 
do whatever you want tomorrow. Yeah. Find yeah. a subleaser. Go live in this other town. Whatever it takes go to experience. Yeah. 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 I, I like your approach to life. Oh. Great model for our children. Thanks. It's very haphazard. Well, and you shouldn't like keep forging a path that you recognize is making you unhappy. Yeah. Like just for the sake of like That's not quitting. That's a different kind of novel. We've read them. Yeah. When people take that path and keep going down the wrong way, yeah. it's miserable. Oh, sure. Yeah, for sure. We would love to have you tell us more about your Iowa Writers Workshop experience. We consider it one of the best in the world. We're so proud, even though it's not our city, that we're in the same state. And we, so many people feel like they go through the program and we might get an Iowa nod in a novel mm. from an Iowa Writers Workshop. They'll be like, and then the person went through Des Moines. And we're like, oh, you graduated from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's how you identify smokers and I know. Yes. Oh my God. I love this comparison. That's so great. I'm going to look for them everywhere. Um, what was that like? The first thing I think of every time I think of the Iowa Writers Workshop is the girls. Oh yeah. Episode, episodes. It was like, yeah. and then she went to the Iowa Writers Workshop and it's like kind of a shit show. Yeah. What did you think of that? Did you watch that episode? I did. I watched it. Um, I actually, I watched it on the, I remember watching it on the treadmill. I had, I had applied to Iowa, but I hadn't heard back okay. yet. Um, and I remember watching it and just being like, huh. huh. Yeah. <laughs> it, was not, it was not a favorable portrayal. No, it um, was like kind of like a mess. And was, she yeah. got there and she was like, eh, I don't like this. It was a strange, well, yeah, it was a strange arc in my opinion. It was very, <laughs> it was an underserved arc. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so would you say that your experience with Iowa Writers Workshop was much better I than would. Lena Dunham's. I would. Yeah. What is it? What is the program like? Like, how long are you in it, and what what do you get out of it? So you're there for two years. Um, a lot of people opt to stay for a third year um, to teach, which I did. I stayed. Well, I stayed for more than a third year. Yeah. I guess I'm still there. But um, so yeah, it's a two year program. Um, the benefits. I mean, I really can't. Iowa changed my life. I have really nothing but wonderful things to say about it. I was really lucky. Um, I mean, it's as with anything, it, it is determined by the people that you're there with. And yeah. I got so lucky because I had such a lovely cohort of people and it was very diverse across the board. I was one of, I was 25 and I was one of the younger people. Um, Ooh, cool. so I had, you know, friends who had lived entire other lives and had other yeah. careers and had kids and had, you know, just all of this experience and who wrote very differently from me and who had different reading lives. And um, I feel like when I was there, it was a very supportive community. Like there wasn't a, I mean, there's competition. Certainly there's um, yeah. I mean, that's going to happen anywhere. Um, but when I was there, I just, you know, it was the first time I'd ever, been given enough, you know, enough money to pay my rent and all I had to do was write, which was terrifying at the beginning um, because I had always had jobs from the time I was, you know, 16 or 17. I'd always worked alongside my writing life. And then suddenly it was like, you're just here and you just get to be and write. And <laughs> so it was a little bit like, ah, like, what do I do? So it took me a few months to kind of figure out how to, how to do that. But it was just such a invigorating and invigorating, um, just wonderful. All I did was read and write and I took every class I possibly could. I was such a dork and I, I mean, it was just so much fun. It was just, um, I have not been able to, and I, I talked to my friends who I went to school with 
And all of us are always talking about like, how can we have that again? Like, how do we? <laughs> even though at the time it was stressful and it was overwhelming and intimidating and um it was the most fun you ever had it was the most fun i ever had <laughs> in my whole life i'm so jealous what do you think sets that program apart because they, that there is no program like that is cranking out writers like that one is yeah i mean i think so it's the oldest it was, it was the first mfa program so i think that's one thing that distinguishes it um and i think it's, you know, I don't, I don't know. It funds its students well. Um, and it really is a place that just lets you be a writer. Mm -hmm. You, you, you have to teach sometimes, but it's usually just one class. So it's not like you're, you've got a, a four course teaching load and you, you know, have some time to work on your stuff. It's, mm -hmm. it's really a place that gives you this unbelievable gift of just two years mm -hmm. of time to write. Um, and so I think I think that's a big part of it. Um, and I think you get people who are committed because to move to Iowa City <laughs> from, you know, people are coming from coastal across cities. The world. Yeah, across the world. Yes, we have a lot more international students than we used to do. People are yeah. coming these great distances to live in the middle of Iowa. Which the I middle, love. the middle, the middle. Yes, exactly. At least it was semi-familiar to you. You're like, I've seen cornfields before. It's yes, fine. yes. It was not it was not shocking to me. Um, but I think that when you sort of commit to going to live in a pretty quiet college town. Mm. That's a big, better that's a big be awesome. thing. Yeah. yeah. And we have, you know, we have Prairie Lights Books where I work as a bookseller. and um, <laughs> Yay. Uh, but we have, you know, people come through Prairie Lights on their, you know, national book tours. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's an institution. It's been there since, oh, God, I should know this. The 70s, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Thank I you. think it has I been in the 70s. We had yeah. our 45th anniversary, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's really a, it's such a cool city too. And it's, you know, there's, there's, I remember going to sign my lease and I went to a bar and I sat down and the bartender said, that's, that's Kurt Vonnegut's bar seat. And I was like, all right, I feel like that's not true, but uh, maybe, maybe it <laughs> I'll was. I'll hold on but, to it for a moment. Yeah. 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 <laughs> all right, Kurt. Yeah. Um, something I've never Googled myself and maybe, you know, as a bookseller, is Prairie Lights name modeled after City Lights? I don't know. We'll I should know this. Fact. Don't tell my boss. I won't. I I, what I want to know is like, do people ever, are you ever like work, you know, do you ever, someone like buy their book from you? No. Um, so Jan Weissmiller, who owns the store, who's just the best. Um, she, I, I watch, I've watched her hand sell my book several times. She's like the, she's the greatest. She's been such a <laughs> wonderful, like champion of the book before it even came out. Um, but I've seen her do that, and that's really fun. But no, I've never. You've never I, hand sold your own book, no. and then we we're like not told him it was you. No. Oh, no. I would want to videotape that. I kind of feel like <laughs> I, I would be like, that. yeah, you'd be like <laughs> author hand selling your own book, but the customer doesn't know. <laughs> uh, like this is the this is the best book. Uh, let me tell so you, good. it's masterful, <laughs> uh, but it is because that's how I sell your book. In fact, I was carrying your book around. Here's my copy. I was going to reference things, but I already read it a lot of times. So I was at our favorite restaurant in town, the cafe, and I was like, this book was just sitting there. I came out of the bathroom and I left it on the bench outside the bathroom. Um, because I would never bring this in the bathroom. Um, and this lady was like, is that a good book? And I was like, let me tell you. And then I talked to her for five minutes. And I was like, okay, bye. It's at my bookstore downtown. You can get it. Um, 
who, what are some of your favorite connections? Because I feel like the Iowa Writers Workshop has its own mafia with a secret handshake. Oh. You're all great, um, like champions of one another. What have some of your favorite Iowa Writers connections been? Oh, gosh. Um, not, I mean, not to be like, this is not an award ceremony where you have to name yeah, all the important yeah. people, but... Oh gosh, this is like what, when someone asks me what my favorite books are mm-hmm. and I'm like, have I ever in my life read a book? Um, who, Alan Gerganis is a writer who went through the workshop and has, he taught when I was a student there. Um, he's now in his seventies. I think he is such a, he's an incredible writer. Um, oldest living Confederate widow tells all he's written many, many books, but, okay. um, plays well with others. Anyway, he's wonderful. Thank you. And he, yeah, he came through and taught and it was just, he taught a, a few week class on writing novel beginnings and he was so generous just as a teacher. And a, he's just such a like gentle, lovely person. Um, he is someone I love. Um, who else has come through? Ethan Kanan was my mentor in grad school. Um, I loved his work before I came to the workshop and, and still do, um, who are other Flannery O'Connor. I mean, there's, there's the sort of, you know, I could, I could list the, you um, feel proud to be part of a tradition that would include. Flannery. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. There is a, if you want some workshop legend, there is a story that, uh, Flannery O'Connor put up a story in workshop, um, and came into class to have people discuss it and people, they just brought her flowers and they didn't talk about the story because it was perfect. I don't know if that's true, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it could be. I, yeah. Uh, it makes me want to go back and read her. But um, yeah. Amy, our bookseller manager in the store, already asked you this question, but I'd love for you to tell us who inspires you as a writer. Whose work do you read and you feel like that's it? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Alice Monroe is my kind of end all be all. She is just, she's who I read when I have forgotten how to write. She's who I read when I, you know, remember, like when I want to remember why I read, um, she's so good there. She's never written a bad story. Um, so I, and, and she's not taught very widely. So I really get, I like geek out with my students and I make them read like this 75 page story. I'm like, let's talk about this for hours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love her. I love Lori Moore. I've not read Lori Moore's new novel, so I cannot speak to that yet. I do have it, but, um, Lori Moore, I love her so much. I love all these short story writers. Um, Jeffrey Eugenides, who I mentioned, Richard Russo, who I just love so much. Um, who else? What have I read recently? God, I don't know. I read all the Louise Pennies during COVID. I love you. Oh my God, no. You're scaring Claire Lombardo. Stop Sorry, it. I'm scaring your dog, actually. <laughs> Renee's like, we need to go. She's like, what is, See, who are these people? No, I was going to tell you, there are like no books that I will reread. Yours is one of them. And number one, Louise Penny. Okay. And Anna Green Gables. I've never read out of Green Gables. That's okay. I forgive you. Thank you. Um, but... <laughs> I, Louise Penny. She's the best. I just, oh. yeah, I read all 18 yes. of the Inspector Gamache novels during COVID. Me too. And really? Me too. Oh, God. And it's funny. I read one a month to pace myself. Oh, wow. I don't know. I was sort of like, some some of them would take me a really long time and some of them. But I also was like, when I got to the end, I was like, wait a minute. Because <laughs> it was so luxurious when I started that so I was like, there's 17 more of these. This is amazing. And then she didn't publish one this year. Oh, she, she was. You're right. No. Okay, I mean, you've been busy. She got a golden retriever. Did you know that? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> of all the reasons we love you, you may own a little black dog right now who's very cute. She's the best. But you do love goldens. I do. I do. Um, 
What, okay, I know this is putting you on the spot. You already said it's hard to name things, but mm. is there anything you've read in the past, say, six months to a year Ooh. that you were like, oh, this is the best thing I've done this year? Yeah, I can tell you the three books okay. um, I'm, I'm putting on my bookseller hat. Okay. So two books that I have hand-sold, I, I try to hand-sell. I'm not a very good salesperson, um, but <laughs> uh, two books that I have loved. Um, I loved American Mermaid. Oh, yeah, we love yes. American Oh my god. Like, oh my god. Is I, that not did I so hear a good. rumor that your book was auctioned for a miniseries slash Yes, yes you did hear. it's the narrative. I know it's so good and it's very I mean, there's a, <laughs> she gets so much right. We love American so Mermaid. It's so good. Yeah. So, thank I, you, Brian. Uh I loved that so much. And then another book that I loved is um, <laughs> I loved Fellowship Point by Alice uh, Elliott Dark. I didn't get all the oh. way through it. I listen to it as an audiobook. I okay. need to go back to print. It's so good. I, I've sold many copies of that, okay. which is, I am proud of because it's a long ass it book. It's, you know, most fun. We like big length. books and we cannot <laughs> lie. Says <laughs> so the author uh, of that it's one. It's so good, though. And then a shorter book that I think just came out. Oh, God, I forgot the title. Um, I meant it once. I said it once. I meant it once. Kate Doyle. Um, it's I a story it collection. Um, We're I, adding a I short story once. collection to Ooh. our store, and we will make sure I meant it once was in. Oh, good. It came out. I think it came out this summer. Um, it's so good. It's so sort of, it's very, I would say, sparely written, um, mm -hmm. but incredibly real and incredibly like... It was just so good and very funny and very dark. Done. We'll order that. Thank you. Um, you will not regret it. So we can skip to the lovely little animal on your lap. <gasps> yeah. Tell us about Renee. This dog is in your bio and has been blurbed in other languages. I saw she in has. a write-up. <laughs> I was very impressed. How did you, be, have you always been a dog person? How did Renee come to be part of your life? Tell us about Renee. Yeah, Renee is the best. Uh, Renee is a... Chihuahua mix, but she kind of looks. I think she sort of looks like a tiny black lab. Um, she's not like when you picture a Chihuahua, you picture like tiny. Yeah. I like Chihuahuas, but you she doesn't like look like a Chihuahua. She maybe yeah. has like a Chihuahua nose. Yeah, yeah. She's got the little profile. Um, mm -hmm. I got Renee when I lived in Philadelphia. Her name was Tinsel at the time, because uh, it was before Christmas, and she had two relations who were in the shelter with her mm -hmm. uh that I don't know if they were her sons or mm -hmm. some other kind of relation um and their names were uh Krampus and Dreidel <laughs> and I was looking at Krampus who was sort of like a long-haired little black dog mm -hmm. and there was this little tiny face over his shoulder and the woman at the shelter was like that is Krampus's mother <laughs> and it was Renee um and so yeah Renee is the best and I've had her for three years and I, I have always been a dog person I grew up like I was telling you earlier with uh golden retrievers so we had we had Bo and then we had Cooper and then we got a yellow lab named Henry when I was a teenager so we and my parents always adopted sort of slightly older dogs mm -hmm. so we had these this succession of older giant dogs who were the best um and I never thought I would get a tiny dog but then I then I got Renee and we are <laughs> people someone told me yesterday I had to get new headshots taken and my photographer because I brought Renee with me. Um, and he said, you guys look a lot alike. <laughs> I mean, Which we kind of I have yeah. to say that when author, I discovered that an author is a dog person through creeping on them on social media, my esteem for them does raise a bit. It's like a major bonus point. Like I agree. Yeah. Cat people probably are great too and they probably write great books, but 
Uh, no, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> You're a cat person and a dog person. You just own cats. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But, yeah. um, so does Renee have any funny quirks? Oh, Lord. Or preferences? Yes. All of, Renee is a funny quirk and preference. <laughs> yeah, she is a very particular dog. She is, um... I don't even know how to describe her. <laughs> she, she's saying hi to people outside our recording door. Can I also just say that your dog at the moment is snapping on is a boot tray? A boot it's tray. Amazing. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Um, yeah, Renee is very quirky. She is a very particular dog. I, she was rescued from a hoarding house, so mm-hmm. I don't think she ever really learned how to be a dog. And now we live in Iowa City and we have a big yard and she's like, loves to chase it's just been I, I whatever I get emotional about this because yeah. I love dogs so much but she didn't really have a great start to her life but now she is living her best life she also has a lot of outfits I did get her Halloween costume for this year <laughs> Ooh, it, what's she gonna be she's thank you so much for asking <laughs> yes please tell us um she's going to be an artist there's this costume oh. um Wait, does it have a palette and does she walk and with it? jeans yes it's <laughs> <laughs> I saw one of her previous outfits like that mm-hmm. on your Instagram. What yeah. was she dressed as with like a body in front? She was a UPS driver. Oh god, I um, love that. And she was a doctor. <laughs> she was. Uh, she also has a rain slicker that my sister said made her look like the killer from I Know What You Did Last Summer. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, it's just Renee. Right. She's harmless. <laughs> um. She's very. When I got her, she was very. Oh yeah. There <laughs> That's she <is>. one I remember. <laughs> she's. I mean, she's so tolerant, but she's also just like, get the fuck away you? from me. She never wore it. Um, I lost it. I mean, she's the most like dignified little dog. And then I put her in these. I mean, I'm not like a person who she wears little sweaters because she gets cold. Yeah. Halloween costume. It just I find it really so delightful. So we've already talked about our one of our favorite Reese's here this year. Lovey and I are going to be American Mermaid. We're wearing mermaid tails. Oh, my God. (laughs) She's wearing an American flag bandana. And I am wearing a T-shirt that looks like an American flag bikini. Oh, my God. I'm not wearing a real Okay. Just to be clear, you can. If you Nobody's going to see that. Um, but that's how we oh roll. My God, I... And last year we were lessons in chemistry. I was Elizabeth Zott. She was six thirty. Editors, but you, okay, you guys work out. Yeah. Your editor is wonderful. She's the best. She I know. like she's the best. I yeah. I as a bookseller and uh, a bookstore owner and a buyer now, I've started to learn those levels of imprints and then editors and then. The fact that you share that editor is like, ah, I found my jam. This editor uh, really is making the books I need. Just give me the oh, next good. one. Come on. Yeah. There, she has a, there's a really good one coming out um, called The Husband. Keep an eye out for it. I just read it. Um, you may be getting a galley soon. Okay. Yeah. Put it on my list. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. I don't remember her name. Holly. Something. The Husband. It's by Holly. Yes. <laughs> We'll it's coming out. out in the spring, I think. But yeah, I always know when my editor sends me a book that I will like it, which is a nice way mm-hmm. to feel about someone sending you books because it's not always the case. Oh, wow. Look at that. That's amazing. We, oh, look at the clock. She did not love the clock. Okay. That's okay. And she only <laughs> sort of likes costumes. So yeah, Renee's Renee, got her beat on that. Renee, I mean, Renee wore we'll them long enough for to a have picture. Her. She won't even pose. Sometimes yeah. if I hold her, she'll... She was also... She was a rocket ship the year. Anyway, I'll stop talking about Renee's Halloween costume. I love Renee's <laughs> career um, as a fashion model. She's really good, yeah. She is really good. And I actually do think she has great uh, P 
people and dog skills. Because she walked in, she walked in and met Lovey, the shop dog, who's got quite some swagger at our store. And they, they're just little BFFs now. Just she's chilling very, out. Yeah, she's very chill. She's mm-hmm. her best friend in Iowa City is a hundred pound yellow lab named Robbie. Oh. Oh. <laughs> so she, she really likes that's such dogs a dog and... town too. Like it's such yeah. a great town to walk dogs and to go around campus town and downtown. Yeah. So um I have done a really bad disservice to Ellen in that I've monopolized all your time. So Ellen, my co-partner, <laughs> if there was anything you wanted silent. to ask uh, me. No, I was just wondering what you're working on because <laughs> we've you. got, I know that there's some something coming. Yeah. And hopefully. we are anxiously <laughs> awaiting and I don't know what all you can tell us. Yes, but tell us what you're comfortable telling us with and we will eagerly lap it up as soon as it's in our hands. Oh, thank you. Um, Yeah, so my second book is coming out in June, I believe. It is called Same As It Ever Was. Um, Let me see if I can pitch it. I'm still not good at that. It is about a woman named Julia who is in her 50s, and she has what appears to be a really lovely life. Um, She has a husband that she loves and two teenage 20-something-ish children who are doing well. Uh, and a, a little tiny black dog who is obsessed with her. Uh, <laughs> she is obsessed with back. Um, and she runs into an elderly woman at the grocery store uh, and it who is a, a friend of hers from her past. And she kind of loses it um, after that. And then you find out why. Um, so it really ends no. up being an exploration of one woman's life from kind of well, for a while. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's coming out. Yeah, it's coming out in June, I believe, um, with Doubleday Books. And mm-hmm. yeah. So can't I have, wait. <laughs> I have a question for you sure. about BISOC information. As a bookseller, you sure. know how books get tagged certain ways. Yeah, yeah. And just a little add-on. I want to know your opinion. So I was looking at the most one we ever had, and I was looking at the BISOC, and it was like fiction, literary women, Mm. family life. And I'm like, sure. Yeah. Got me all the way there. Do you, because I was thinking about this, do you have objection to the BISAC women or do you take it with pride? Because I wonder like, where's the BISAC men? That's a great question. Yeah. That doesn't, I feel like there's like, there's not health or like, yeah, yeah, but there's not. Yeah. yeah, yeah, It's like fiction about the male experience. It doesn't say those poor men men aren't getting represented. It's men's fiction. This is men's fiction. Yeah. There are no (laughs) books about men. I've ever been written. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't, you, I mean, you, you raise a really good point. It's not something that upsets me. Mm -hmm. I do think, um, there's a tendency to dismiss women's fiction, Mm -hmm. which I hate because, what I, also most fiction, it, most contemporary literary fiction is women's like whatever. Yeah. It's a very female yeah. driven. Women are writing like, the best books. That's yeah. just that's just facts. Hands down, the not great saying that there today. aren't dudes doing a good job, but of course, contributing. Good for them. <laughs> but like the great writers today, who I believe you are the newest addition to their canon, Anne Patchett, Barbara King Solver, uh, Donna Tart. These women are knocking it out of the park. So like. Thank yeah, you. we might as well hold that badge with pride. Totally, yeah. And I think, um, I mean, this is a, uh, this my, my novel is primary, the most fun we ever had is primarily about women. Um, I'm always really excited when a man reads the most fun and talks to me about it. Um, oh, yeah. 
Because I do think that it's easy to look at it and say, oh, it's it's a novel about women. It doesn't apply to me. And so whenever there's a man who actually reads it and then is like, oh, it's actually just about people. Like, what a, yeah. what a yeah. concept. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, and men come from women, so, That's you know. true. That is, that is accurate. <laughs> you should figure it out. <laughs> okay. Well, that was my curiosity. Um, so the way we end is with a cheers to keep the champagne flowing and the books going. Cheers. And thank you for joining us on this special episode of Bubbles and Books, popping off with Claire Lombardo. Thank you so much. This was such a delight. Yeah. <laughs> and now and I'm going like, to like cash out and go to away. bed and I'll just dream about how I met Claire Lombardo. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Popping Off with Dog-Eared Books. Be sure to like, subscribe, and comment if you enjoyed this. And if you know someone we should interview on a future popping off, DM us in our social media.